the sun is shining, the flowers are blooming, spring has sprung, and it's time for us to find out just who got their bell rung 25 years ago to the date this week here on Kicking Attitudes. We bring you our Trading Places concept covering WCW's Spring Stampede 1994. What's going on, everybody? Thank you all so very much for joining me, hitting that download button, and being part of all the fun this week here on Kicking Attitudes. We're going to cover our very first WCW pay-per-view event under the Trading Places concept. Uh, you know, a lot of 1994s being covered on this show in the last few months. We did a watch-along of the 94 Royal Rumble. We did a watch-along of WrestleMania 10, the 25-year anniversary. I feel like 1994 is a year that gets slept on a lot in terms of match quality in wrestling. And there's been a lot of hidden gems in, in the year 1994 when it comes to just the overall landscape of wrestling at that time between the WWF and WCW. So I thought it would be, uh, it would be rather fun and interesting to cover this event because this is the second to last WCW pay-per-view event that takes place before Hulk Hogan's arrival into the company just a few short months later. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to go over all the what-if scenarios, uh, the trading places concepts, if you will, um, had the results, you know, gone the opposite direction with Hulk Hogan's impending arrival just a few short months later, I felt like it would just be rather interesting. Something that, you know, to ponder, to question, to, to make you all think. Because that's what I like to do. I like to make everyone think. I like to think myself when it comes to different scenarios and different ideas in the history of professional wrestling. So, um, this event, I'm really looking forward to breaking down and discussing. And before we do that, allow me to break down for you where we are on social media. We are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash kickin out at two hit the like button if you have not already uh you know if you have hit the like button please tell a friend to hit the like button uh you know i know that the facebook page isn't as updated uh as i'd like it to be uh lately you know a lot of just you know links to uh weekly shows not a whole lot of content up there unfortunately real life has gotten in the way and i try to do the best i can but i want to make it as fun and interactive as possible and i will work harder and do better at that in the coming weeks and months uh when it comes to kicking out it too so uh you know we have links to archive shows but you know sometimes i like to post pictures up there and 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 articles and throw out discussions to get you guys all you know interacting at and talking with each other. I want to make a fun atmosphere when it comes to old school retro throwback pro wrestling. So, um, be on the lookout for more activity over on the Facebook page. Uh, we're also on Twitter as well. Uh, you can find us uh, at Kicking Out 2, K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T, and the number 2. Uh, like I said, the following is not as strong on you know Twitter as it is on Facebook. I'd like to you know make a change to that at some point, hopefully. But hopefully before the end of 2019, because we're just about halfway through. Um, actually, yeah, close to halfway through. We're at the quarter of 2019 i want the end of the year for us to have 50 followers i have 27 currently i'm aiming for 50 okay so please by all means tell a friend to follow us if they have twitter if they don't have twitter just get a twitter just to follow us because it's the cool thing to do um you know, same stuff we got going on on Facebook. Obviously, following that is strong. Discussions aren't really as strong. Um, 
but you know I like to post you know little fun pictures um, links to the shows as well the, the gifs memes stuff like that so I, I try to do as much on the Twitter as I do on Facebook but I try to add a little different twist to it um, with the gifs as well because that seems to be the big popular thing these days but uh, give us a follow on Twitter and be a part of all the fun over there as well and uh, the fun just continues for kicking out it too because we are still a part of the greatest pro wrestling podcast collaboration collaboration excuse me in the history of retro pro wrestling podcasts i'm talking about kicking out of two and retro mania presents marking out the days that's right we go each and every week kobe Nida from retro mania and myself as we discuss um we discuss the history of pro wrestling on those particular dates. Our show drops every Thursday, so on the date that our show drops, we discuss the history of wrestling, some of the important and not so important moments. We discover, or excuse me, we discuss birthdays, we discuss people who've passed away, memorable moments, not so memorable moments. We try to break it all down for you. We take our weekly field trip with the Magic School Bus of Pro Wrestling podcast and mark out. That's right, because that's the whole point of the show. We're marking out the, these moments each and every day on that calendar so uh, you know be on the lookout for more episodes of marking out the days with Kobe and myself as we continue to build the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network um, you know kicking out of two retro mania gaijin radio hulkamania is dead marking out the days if any of you guys have a wrestling podcast out there that you want to be a part of this collaboration drop us a line over at kicking out at two on facebook or dm whatever do the same thing over at retro mania um we'd love to hear what you got we'd love to hear your voice and your opinion and and, and see if you know you you could be a part of the team so hit us up over on facebook facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two you can also find uh you know, Kobe and Retromania at Retromania, retro with a W, mind you. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, just let us know uh, if it's something you're interested in because we want to build the family of, of wrestling podcasts with this new network. So, um, the fun just never ends when it comes to kicking out it too. And uh, as cliche as that may sound, the fun's going to continue right now with our Trading Places concept here. Um, now that I got all the social media plugs out of the way, uh, I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to bring a different flavor and a different flair to this uh, episode of kicking out it too with this WCW Spring Stampede 1994 Trading Places. Uh, before I get into it any further, I'm doing this one solo this week just because um, you know, scheduling as always. You know, you might hear a lot more of me by myself. I know back in February I did a few shows by myself, and I swore to you that it wasn't going to happen again. However, um, you know, from time to time I might just do these on my own because scheduling just happens to work out that way, and I can't have a co-host. So um, this week. It's one of those situations. I'm going to try and fly solo on this and give you my best, and hopefully I do. I, I do right by you know your standards so um here we are with uh, wcw spring stampede 1994 the event took place uh, april 17th 1994 25 years to this date if you're listening to this april 17th 2019 this is the 25th anniversary of this event and like i said this is just a few short months before Hulk Hogan would arrive in WCW. Um, WCW was in a bit of a transition phase. Um, Eric Bischoff had just, he's about six or seven months into his tenure as the executive producer of WCW, and he's really starting to make some changes to the product itself and 
giving it more of a, um, a mainstream feel. He's taken the, the, the television tapings and he's brought it to Disney Universal, you know, Disney MGM Studios. I think he taped some stuff at Universal Studios as well. All the syndicated stuff um, really got it out of the smoke-filled, dingy, you know, lightly dimmed arenas that would seat about, you know, two or three hundred people and you have to, you know, lower the lights down so it looked like you had a full house. Um, really trying to make make it appealing more on a mainstream level. Uh, you know, doing some good things as far as I was concerned at that time. But it was, you know, the, the, just the beginning, as we all know. Um, as a kid, I remember back 25 years ago, um, during that time period, you know, I watched whatever wrestling I could. My parents tried to, you know, they, they tried very hard to make sure I didn't, overload on wrestling on a weekly basis but it was ww it was mainly wwf because that was what i grew up on that's where i started watching wrestling and if there was time i'd watch saturday night or i'd watch wcw pro or i'd watch wcw main event on sunday evenings um on tbs this is before nitro this is before there was a wcw monday nitro so um a lot of my wrestling fix was on the weekends i uh, didn't get to watch a whole lot of monday night raw um in the in the early days because you know monday nights are school nights and i couldn't watch wrestling on a school night it was just too late you know i had a bedtime i was still a kid so um a lot of my fix for wrestling was on the weekends and i this was probably the the beginning of where i really got to watch a lot of wcw on a very consistent basis saturdays and sundays um where my television time if i didn't have any kind of activities going on outside whether it was you know little league or just being outside with friends that was where the majority of my my weekends were spent watching you know wrestling like most wrestling fans on the weekends saturdays and sundays were destination tv for wrestling fans you know over you know 25 years ago and beyond so um this was a time period where um, I was, I, I felt like I was watching a happening because things were changing with WCW at that time. In hindsight, looking back on it, um, it definitely, you, you definitely saw the early stages of some changes being made. Like I said, it had a little more of a mainstream appeal to it, the look uh, of the show, taping it at Disney and having just the, 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 the production quality just changed you know drastically you know like night and day it went from like you know kansas to the black and white and then the beautiful colors of oz you know if, if you can understand that analogy so at this time period um a lot was going on uh this was during a time period where they were name dropping hulk hogan um it, it wouldn't be officially announced that he was um he was signing with the company but his name was getting thrown around a lot in wcw um and even as a kid i wasn't sure uh what they were doing i really couldn't get a handle on it and you know going back and doing research and looking looking at it now um you still really can't tell what, what during the time period what his status was um I listened to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and he's discussed that he had loose conversations with Hogan in the beginning, um, and it really wasn't set in stone during this time period that he was going to be joining the company, but um, there was interest on both sides. They just had to figure out the particulars and the logistics and the numbers and things like that, So, um, but it wasn't a done deal. But they were throwing his name out there on TV, which I found rather interesting. And this was during a time period where Hogan was not wrestling at all. He had left the World Wrestling Federation. And as a fan, um, 
I was, I wouldn't say I was heartbroken, but it was a hard adjustment to go from Hulk Hogan, who was the guy that I grew up watching wrestling with, uh, the guy that, you know, um, got me into it as a fan. My first favorite, probably one of my favorites of all time, uh, the favorite of all time, in my opinion. And, um, you know, going from that to like, you know, trying to adjust to the new generation of the World Wrestling Federation with Bret Hart and Undertaker and Owen Hart and Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels and Diesel. Um, is, and as excited as I was watching that stuff, um, you know, I was still in an adjustment phase, just like WCW was, of, of you know, trying to have life without Hulk Hogan. Um, and so when his name was dropped on TV um, numerous times in the spring of 94, like I said, I didn't know what to make of it as a kid. Um, but at the same time, I was also very excited at the prospects of him returning to just wrestling in general. Um, if that meant that he was going to come back to the WWF or if he was going to go to WCW, there was some excitement. But at the same time, I still didn't know what to make of it because of the way that they just kind of threw his name out there. Um, in, in Especially in the Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat rivalry, which I'll get into later on. Um, but this event took place. Uh, at the um, the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois, an arena that is most notably known for um, you know WrestleMania two. Uh, they held the first, you know, they held the second, you know, WrestleMania, the Chicago portion of it because it was held in three different places. Uh, they've hosted numerous uh, WWE pay per view events following that. Of course, WrestleMania thirteen with Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. So um, Chicago was a big wrestling town and um, definitely a very boisterous, lively crowd for wrestling events. And that's I think what also helped make this WCW Spring Stampede event a very uh, interesting and underrated show because I, you know, the Chicago crowd certainly helped um, the presentation on TV with their with with their activity and their energy that they brought. So let's get into um, some of these matches here, and we will trade places, if you will. Um, first match on the card, opening this paper. Actually, no, let me let me go back a little bit. Um, I'm not going to trade places with this concept, but uh, a local Chicago radio station promoted a WCW, a, a celebrity match to take place before Spring Stampede even went on the air as we saw the Partridge family's Danny Bonaducci face and defeat the Brady Bunch's Christopher Knight. Um, didn't know this took place until recently listening to an episode of Tony Schiavone's What Happened When podcast. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess that was, you know, you know, WCW's attempt at trying to, uh, you know, use celebrities to draw people to the arenas. And uh, I don't know if it really helped, but it happened. And, you know, it was a dark match. And I think they showed a clip of it during this pay-per-view um, at some point just to, you know, kind of let people know what took place before the show went on the air. So, yeah, that happened. And I'm not going to delve into what could have taken place and all the what-ifs because it was a silly, hokey celebrity match. But, um I just thought I'd get that out there for those of you wrestling historians and wrestling buffs that would want to correct me later on. It happened. I'm addressing it. There you go. So let's go to the real opening match of WCW Spring Stampede 1994 as we get Johnny B. Bad defeating Diamond Dallas Page. Now, 
This was early DDP um, in terms of his his uh, his foray into the in-ring action. He was a manager for quite some time, a color commentator. So this was um, early Diamond Dallas Page in a singles role. He had the Diamond Doll with him. Um, and uh, this match was just kind of thrown together at the last minute from what I remember and through my research. Um Johnny B. Bad defeats Diamond Dallas Page, and Johnny B. Bad was a regular on WCW television, uh, competing for the TV title on numerous occasions and uh, being a part of the, the mid-card. He opened up a lot of WCW events. I used to see him almost on a weekly basis, and uh, people say the character was hokey and silly, and to some, yeah, I could I could see that, but at the same time, um, he, he brought an energy to... Um, the presentation and and really kind of hyped up the crowd early on when he would uh, when he would come out he had the bad blaster and so Johnny B Bad was a was a in my opinion hindsight being 2020 was in a good spot in particular uh with his character, you know, he opened up the sh a lot of the shows, got the crowd hyped, and, uh, you know, he was someone that you remembered, at least in my opinion. Um, some people might lynch me for saying that, but whatever. Um, you know, solid in-ring performer, didn't do anything too flashy, but um, at the same time, he, he had a colorful character that made you remember and stand out. So, um, in this instance, like I said, this match was thrown together, you know, almost virtually at the last minute, and... Uh, you know, history showed us that Johnny B. Bad defeated Diamond Dallas Page. However, if uh, the tables were turned and we traded places, um, what would a Diamond Dallas Page victory over Johnny B. Bad do? Well, in the early days of DDP's run, it certainly would have, uh, at that time in 1994 in WCW, probably would have made him a, a, a solid player in the, the TV title or even the U.S. title scene, um, getting a victory over someone who was established in WCW at that time, like a Johnny B. Bad. So, um, the Page's trajectory following that victory at that time in WCW, I would say... He'd probably be, you know, like I said, competing for or even holding the television title, maybe even the, the United States title. Um, dare I say, um, could he even be a part of a tag team with like, God, I don't know. Um, but I, I could see I could see this victory launching him to like some something better than the lower card like in the mid card so if if i were to if i were to go with a realistic trajectory for diamond dallas page in 1994 following a victory over johnny b bad at this event i'd probably say he would be competing for the television title dare i say even holding the tv title i know he had held it at one point uh later on in his career but certainly it would have it would have really helped his stock and and maybe expedited his rise up the ranks a little bit faster but it wouldn't done it wouldn't have done like any great favors for him um i think it would have set him on a good pace or his character on a good pace towards bigger and better things so that's that i'm not going to get too deep into that there because like i said um that match was just kind of thrown together there really isn't a whole lot to really chew on when it comes to uh their um there, the, you know, the issues between these two because it was just, like I said, a last-minute deal. As we move on, um, we had Lord Steven Regal and Brian Pillman wrestle 
for the television title at this event in the next match. And let's kind of go back a little bit here as to how this really all started. Um, it was on an episode of WCW Worldwide on March the 12th where Regal had defended the television championship against Pillman and retained that title um, via a disqualification by hitting Pillman with the cane uh, of his uh, his manager, Jeeves, who was played by... Um, What's his name? Uh, um, shit. The, the guy that was like the, the second top baby face in Memphis. Um, Paul Jones. So yeah, Paul Jones. Paul Jones Paul Jones played Jeeves, um, his little butler, if you will. I think that was what his name was, Jeeves. Anyhow, um, you know, Paul Jones delivered the cane to him. Regal then, uh, you know, gave Pillman a pile driver to the outside um, on the concrete and really intensifying this rivalry. And then uh, on an episode of WCW Saturday Night, the following week, um, you know, there was an uproar of uh, fan support for Pillman getting a rematch, and Regal refused to defend that championship only for WCW's championship committee a week later on WCW Pro to announce that Regal will defend the title officially against Pillman. Um, which was an, a nice little interesting, uh, you know, mid-card rivalry heading into this pay-per-view. Two guys who were great performers. Um, Regal, very underrated and underappreciated for, for his ability in the ring. And, uh, you know, he was definitely one of the bright spots from an in-ring standpoint at this time in WCW. And a good, like, mid-card healed. Um, against someone who was, you know, very popular and had a following in Brian Pillman, flying Brian Pillman. So um, this was Pillman's, like, second run, I believe, as a, as a good guy, as a babyface at this time in 1994. It was not too long uh, before this that, you know, his run with Steve Austin in the Hollywood Blondes had ended very unexpectedly. So um, this was a good spot for Pillman to kind of reestablish himself in a singles role. Uh, he had already been established prior, um, even before the, uh, the the Hollywood Blondes run with his run with the WCW light heavyweight title, the stuff he did against the Horsemen in, in the early 90s. And so um, this was this was kind of, like I said, the, 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 the re-debut of good guy Brian Pillman uh, against someone who was very uh, hated and loathed like a Lord Stephen Regal. So anyhow, um, as history showed us, for the television title, this match went to a draw, and it was a pretty good match. Um, both guys were really bringing it, and like I said, I, I couldn't really be disappointed um, with their performance and what these two brought. Um, however, um, I thought that because of you know uh, the, the 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 manner that this rivalry started with Regal. Um, kind of pile-driving Pillman on the floor, that it was that it, it had become very personal. And a finish like a draw just doesn't really seem like the proper payoff for a personal rivalry because Regal tried to really injure him and hurt him. Um, so if I were to trade places here, um, there's a few different scenarios and, and uh, I, ideas that I think could have been realistically... Um, put into play here for 1994. Um, first one being that Regal um, could have gotten himself disqualified to keep the championship because, as we know, championships do not change hands on disqualifications. Um, one of those reasons, one of those uh, situations that could have caused a disqualification at the time was 
there was an over-the-top rope rule. You couldn't throw your opponent over the top rope, which I thought was rather silly um, for this time, especially in WCW. They used to do a no using the top rope and no throwing somebody over the top rope rule, and they still had the 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 no over the top rope rule in play. You could still jump off the top rope, um, but you couldn't throw your opponent over the top rope. Otherwise, that caused a disqualification. And so I always thought that was silly even as a kid because um, – yeah, I just thought it was stupid. Like, I mean, you know, wrestling was very, it, to me as a kid, was chaotic and, um, you know, entertaining and fun. And seeing someone get thrown over the top rope was fun. And if, you know, that were to be the reason why a, a match ends via a disqualification, I just thought that that just didn't make sense. So, um, in this instance, Regal could have easily thrown Pillman over the top rope and continued his assault on his head and neck area with maybe another pile driver outside in the concrete um maybe regal could have you know tried to you know end his career um with some kind of uh you know uh, choke to the back neck area or maybe even a neck breaker on the concrete you know causing him to keep his title and pillman not being able to continue wrestling pillman was very good at being a, a sympathetic good guy and a baby face uh the, the crowd could easily get behind him he just had that that ability to to make you believe that you know he's fighting from underneath as a good guy as a babyface so i could see a scenario where regal throws him over the top rope and pile drives him on the, the exposed concrete um thus uh making us all wonder if brian pillman's career would continue now the other concept the other scenario i should say um in this situation since this match was a draw and we didn't have a clear-cut winner, which, you know, a draw, as we all say, is like kissing your sister. Um, it's not cool. It's not fun. It's frowned upon, um, especially in wrestling. <laughs> so uh, Pillman, in this, in this situation, I could have seen Pillman um, get regal. You know, get the victory over regal, like a quick roll-up or um, kind of, you know, taking a page out of Regal's book and uh, maybe cheating to win or, or uh, you know, the, the tables have turned and somehow the referee's either knocked down or distracted and uh, Paul Jones, Jeeves, whatever you want to call him, um, throws the cane in the ring, but Pillman catches it. He nails Regal, knocks out Jones, out the ring apron, disposes of the cane. Referee comes back, one, two, three, Pillman is your winner and new WCW World Television Champion. I think that's something that realistically in 1994 for Brian Pillman, we would have definitely been able to 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 chew on and grasp as a viewer. Um, Pillman, like I said, sympathetic babyface, uh, very credible, established with the audience. Uh, something that I think could have been a nice little uh, TV title run. Um, they didn't really do a whole lot with these two after this match. I think they had a few more matches on television following that with Regal basically coming up the victor and, and, and keeping his championship. But I think a nice little twist could have been a Pillman victory, um, kind of turning the tables on Regal and, and using one of Regal's tactics against him to keep the WCW World Television title. Where it could have gone following that, I mean, you know, Pillman could have taken that championship and defended it against guys like Diamond Dallas Page, like Johnny B. Bad, like even Steve Austin, his former Hollywood blonde partner, uh, Ricky Steamboat. You know, maybe they could have turned Pillman back into a bad guy. Uh, you never know. Um, the possibilities were endless at that time, but a Brian Pillman television title victory 
would have probably been the most that and Regal getting himself disqualified would have probably been the most realistic scenarios considering how this storyline unfolded and where it came to it at Spring Stampede 1984. Excuse me, I just dropped my phone here making a whole lot of noise. I apologize about that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyhow, uh, moving on, we have probably my favorite match of the evening, probably the most physical match and uh a very cringe-worthy match to watch as a fan. Um, it would be the Nasty Boys defeating Cactus Jack and Max Payne in a Chicago street fight for the WCW World Tag Team Championship. Now, uh, these two teams had been involved um, with each other for quite some time. They had a very physical, hard-hitting match at Super Brawl in February, just two months prior. Um there was an instance where uh, Cactus was on the ring apron and I think it was Jerry Sags from the Nasty Boys had um, taken the top rope and, you know, pushed Cactus off the ring apron and Cactus flat back bumping on the exposed concrete. Very, very cringeworthy. Um, and I think that's where the physicality really came into play in that match. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a no DQ or a Chicago street fight kind of match, but they were very physical. They were draw they were they were drawing a fine line um, in terms of uh, you know the, the rule book uh, in their tag team match. So their issues obviously continued heading into Spring Stampede. Um, the the the, uh, the finish at Super Brawl came when Sags had smashed a guitar on Max Payne. As we know, Max Payne was like the 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 the, the hard heavy metal rocker kind of gimmick, and he brought the guitar with him to the ring. He was a little bit odd, and the pairing with Cactus Jack it worked. I thought it was some fun stuff. Um, some of you know Cactus's uh, underrated. Um, uh, material as a performer was the stuff he did with Max Payne, but you know that that incident with the guitar really essentially set up this match for um, Spring Stampede and the Chicago Street Fight element. Um, as we saw on a March 19th episode of WCW Pro, the two teams would be you know it would be announced officially that these two teams would meet in the Chicago Street Fight at Spring Stampede, stemming from that Super Brawl uh, finish, and then on the April 9th episode of Worldwide. Um, Cactus Jack and Max Payne had confronted the Nasty Boys on the video wall during a Nasty Boys promo, um, or I should say after their match, and uh, they basically indicated that, you know, there's going to be no rules in the Chicago street fight, and uh, they're not going to have any remorse for their actions come you know, spring stampede. And so the scene is set. And like I said, this match was physical. These guys went everywhere in the building. There was one point where, um, the most cringe were, there's two moments in this match where like, if it ever comes about that Mick Foley suffers from severe head trauma and brain damage, and God willing, I hope that's not the case, but unfortunately, his track record with crazy bumps that he's taken over the course of his career in this business, it will not surprise me if it, if, if that fact were to come to be, and I don't want this to sound crude or, or crass, but there's two moments in this match where I feel like the, it would explain it all. If, if this were to ha ever happen in the near future. One was he took this crazy bump off the ramp. Now, WCW, and I love this about WCW, they used to have like a long ramp that would go straight to the ring. You, you wouldn't walk out the curtain down the arena floor and then up into the ring. This ramp was just straight ahead. 
and a lot of the action would take place on this ramp. And that's what I used to love about WCW is that they would do different things in the WWF when it came to their presentation. And the ramp was one of them. I remember as a kid, I used to play with with my, my action figures and my ring, and I would take, like, an old shoebox of my mother's, um, the long, thin shoeboxes that used to keep, that, that used to, you know, uh, she used to keep her pumps or her heels, um, in those shoe boxes and I used to take the shoes out and it was a long thin one and it would match the ring and it would look like you know a ramp at the you know the entryway so I would use that and I would you know have the action figures take all kinds of bumps on it and off of it so anyhow Cactus takes this disgusting sickly bump off this ramp onto the exposed concrete head first back bump um, that just makes you you know cringe and turn your head if you if, if you if you aren't, you know, a, a weak-stomached individual, go to the WWE Network, search Spring Stampede 1994, and watch this match. These guys, like, legit beat the shit out of each other. Um, as, a, as entertaining as it can be, it's also very cringeworthy at times. And then there's another incident where um, Jerry Sags takes a shovel and he smashes it over the face of Cactus Jack, and I was just like... I just remember, like, Bobby Heenan's reaction on commentary. Like, he, he didn't know what to make of it. The crowd, like, was like, oh, my God. Like, they couldn't believe it, but they were cheering it at the same time. Um, I just remember as a kid watching this back on VHS. I had bought this on VHS not long after it came out. Um, this was, like, one of the very first tapes. Like, I had recorded, obviously, pay-per-views that I ordered. Uh, not very many, but I remember seeing this in, like, a video store that you could buy. And I was like, ooh, I got to have that. Uh, so this was one of the very first WCW, probably the first WCW VHS tape I had purchased, because uh, they didn't do a whole lot of um, uh, video releases uh, in retail. So um, I purchased this. I remember watching it, and I was just like, "Holy cow! Like this is dangerous! Like this is like I knew it was scripted, but like that's like almost borderline real." And it was. <laughs> they really beat the crap out of each other. So. Um, in this instance, um, the Nasty Boys here defeated Cactus and Max Payne to, uh, you know, uh, to uh, retain uh, or regain the tag team, you know, the, the tag team championships against Cactus Jack and Max Payne. Um, now, had the roles been in reverse and Cactus and Max Payne won this match... Um, wh where could I see these two guys go in 1994? Um, you know, it would later be revealed that Max Payne, um, was no longer with WCW not too long after this match, so they, they put Cactus Jack with Kevin Sullivan, and it was a nice little tag team and an alliance that they, that they had. I believe that they defeated the Nasty Boys at the Slammerie pay-per-view a month later in a Philadelphia street fight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think they were in Philadelphia. I could be wrong. I, I shouldn't be speaking out of turn. But Slammerie 94, Cactus and, and uh, Kevin Sullivan defeat the Nasty Boys in some kind of like a no DQ, falls count anywhere kind of match. Um, so uh, Max Payne's out of the equation. Uh, however, a victory for Cactus and, and, and Max here at Spring Stampede. Um, I mean, I, I could. I don't see them 
being long-term tag team champions um, in 1994. Um, as, as lovable as Cactus Jack is as a good guy, I feel like had Cactus and Max Payne won the titles, I feel like an association with Kevin Sullivan was appropriate, and the three of them could have some sort of weird, demented little trio uh, with Sullivan as kind of like the the leader or like the, the, the games master, if you will, as he used to call himself in the varsity club, um, with, with Cactus and, and Max Payne as like his, his, uh, his mercenaries of sorts. So um, maybe Cactus and Max Payne have a short run as champions, but I could see like the tandems of, uh, I could see like a Bunkhouse Buck and a Terry Funk maybe dethroning them of the tag team titles. Maybe WCW would have um, paired those two teams together for some more physical, you know, no DQ kind of matches. Um, Even though Bunkhouse Buck was fairly new to to WCW television um, and Terry Funk wouldn't come till later, um, later on in the year in WCW. Uh, Yeah, there's a chance that... um, there's a chance that we could have seen something like that. Uh, you know, history showed us that, you know, Cactus and Sullivan would keep the titles and then eventually lose them to pretty wonderful, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma at uh, Bash at the Beach 1994. And so I feel like Cactus and Max Payne, their run as champions wouldn't be as memorable it would be some kind of a transition it wouldn't last very long um maybe as far as maybe as far as the middle of summer you know or even the end of summer i'll go i'll go as 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 far as to say august but as we know that didn't happen with cactus and sullivan who was replacing max Payne. so um you really can't i really can't say where you know these two realistically could have gone as WCW World Tag Team Champions. I feel like a victory for them over the Nasty Boys makes for a great moment because of the physical nature of this rivalry and how sympathetic Cactus was portrayed as for the punishment he was taking from the Nasty Boys. But following that... I can't see them sustaining a long run as tag team champions. And it was kind of proven, you know, with Max being gone and then Sullivan stepping in and really only having like two months with the titles. Um, so it didn't really make a whole it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for them to, to win the championships. And the Nasty Boys were much better as bad guys, were hated more. And, um, you know, they extended the rivalry to a month later, lost the titles. But. You know, we saw what we saw there, and, you know, that's that when it comes to this match. But go out of your way to watch this on WWE Network. This is truly one of the the more underrated physical matches. These guys hurt each other to the point where you don't even want to watch, but... If you're a fan of, of 1994 wrestling and Mick Foley, then go out of your way to watch this. Because this is like the early stages of what we'd eventually see Foley do in the WWF with the crazy bump off the top of the cage, Hell in the Cell, and all the other crazy stuff he did. So, um, 
Yeah, let's move on to another match that was just kind of thrown together for this card. Um, Stone, or I should I almost call him Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stunning Steve Austin, managed by a Colonel Robert Parker. <laughs> Defeated the Great Muda by disqualification to retain the WCW United States Championship. Um... Austin was kind of involved with Ricky Steamboat a little bit before this match, um, claiming that he deserved an opportunity at the WCW World Heavyweight title that Ric Flair was holding. Um, Austin had somewhat of a solid singles run, uh, breaking away from Brian Pillman and the... uh, and the, the Hollywood Blondes with Colonel Robert Parker as his manager. Uh, I can only imagine the prospects of what Spring Stampede could have been had we saw Flair and Austin for the title. Um, from an in-ring standpoint at that time in 1994, I would imagine it would be some great stuff. Um, and hell, even on the mic with Flair and, and, uh, and, and Colonel Robert Parker, because Austin wasn't known for having you know great mic skills and, and, a, and a good set of chops holding the stick, but... You know, in 1994, he was pretty solid, but he needed that little extra with with Colonel Parker at the time. So, uh, anyhow, um, you know, Austin would uh, go on to, uh, you know, face Muda for this event, and he would win by disqualification. And um, let's lay out the path for the Great Muda. Let's trade places. If Great Muda were to win and become the WCW United States Champion... In 1994, I mean, as a baby face, as a kid, I looked at Great Muda, and he was a good international bad guy. He was the first wrestler that I, um, first international wrestler, Japanese wrestler, that I was exposed to on American television. Um, I wasn't aware of other Japanese wrestlers at that time. Um, So, um, Great Muda's, uh, you know, exposure to American television during his his brief stints from time to time in WCW was my first introduction to Japanese wrestling. And so I always looked at Muda as um, a really good international bad guy, like a mercenary of sorts, you know. Um, I, I pictured like someone like a great Muda being in the WWF and being managed by like a Mr. Fuji, you know, um, and, and him working with the likes of like, uh, you know, like a like a Bret Hart. Or even an Undertaker, you know what I mean? Um, but anyhow, um, as a good guy, um, this was just kind of thrown together, and I didn't really, I couldn't make sense of it. Uh, 1994, didn't really know what to make of it. Like I said, another match that was just kind of thrown together. Um, not a whole lot of buildup uh, between these two. Uh, Austin would retain, but if Muda were to win and become the United States champion, um, I don't think it really would have amounted to much. Maybe some more matches with Austin. Uh, Maybe, you know, defending against guys like Regal, even though he was the TV champion at the time and would leave this event as a television champion. Um, I don't know. I can't see. Maybe, 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 maybe they, they turn Muda and give him a mouthpiece and he were to, you know, defend the title against someone like a Sting. Um... But I can't, I can't picture another one, another situation where if Muda were to win this title, I feel like it would be like a transitional run, kind of like what I mentioned in the previous match with Cactus and Max Payne. Uh, so a great Muda WCW US title win in 1994 because he was so frequent 
uh, frequently coming in and out of the promotion over the over the the course of the the last couple of years. He didn't really have regular runs. Um, it probably would he probably would have dropped the title to someone else who they wanted to put the title on and, and create a bigger picture with. Um, so great Muda and his WCW US title win in 1994 realistically just wouldn't match up. But the possibilities are endless had he been a more full-time performer with the company. Stuff with Sting, stuff with uh, you know maybe even a Brian Pillman. You know, um, I just I, I feel like. If they were committed to him more and he was committed to the promotion more and not seen as someone that they would bring in as an attraction, um, they could have done some good stuff with him. Like I said, Brian Pillman and Sting and, um, hell, even Hulk Hogan, you know, um, you know, not necessarily saying that in 1994 Hulk Hogan would have been, you know, wanting to, um, become the United States heavyweight champion in WCW at the time because like I said his name was just dropped and his status with WCW was very undetermined at that time but um, you know had Muda had a longer more sustainable run maybe Hogan against Muda um, doing the whole USA versus you know international foreign um, heel would have been something that would have been different at that time for WCW, but they would have, but they would have also been replicating what Hogan did with Sergeant Slaughter and other foreign heels during his time in the World Wrestling Federation. So, um, but like I said, realistically, I think it's probably a scenario where Muda probably drops the title to someone, um, you know, big picture wise, you know, that, that that they have plans for with that United States Championship. Hell. Here's a name that I didn't throw out there that probably would have been a good choice for Muda to drop the title to is Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson wasn't even on this card, was not on this pay-per-view. I believe he was hurt. Um, I don't know if he had returned to WCW at this point. I don't remember. I know that back in late 93, he had the issues with, uh, you know, with Sid in that hotel in Germany where they both, uh, you know, Sid stabbed Arn Anderson with a pair of scissors in a hotel after a locker room brawl. Sid was fired and Arn Anderson was on the mend and he was out of action for, for quite some time. So I, I can't, Arn Anderson may have been a good choice. You know, to, to be the one to take the title from Muda and really establish himself in a singles role, in a singles championship. Because Arn Anderson, to me, in my opinion, was probably one of the greatest WCW television champions of all time. Um, but he never, you know, between television and tag team, he never really got that. He never really got to that level where he could be seen as a, a, a top player that could wrestle the world champion. You know what I mean? Um, even though as a kid, I believed it. It wasn't universally across the board um, amongst wrestling fans and even, you know, peers and colleagues that he worked with that he was a, a main event player. But, you know, as a kid, I always believed like he was one of the toughest guys around and could and could wrestle and beat anybody uh, because I was that enthralled with Arn Anderson as a performer. So um, maybe just wishful thinking because I loved Arn Anderson, but Arn Anderson defeating Great Muda for the United States title following Muda defeating Austin would have been a nice little, uh, little payoff there. Um, let's move on. Uh, I mentioned him in this... Uh, 
just a few moments ago regarding Muda, but uh, let's talk about Sting and Ravishing Rick Rude um, for the WCW International Championship. Let's go back here just a little bit. Um, these two were involved in a, uh, a rivalry uh, since the beginning of 1994. They were um, on opposing teams at Super Brawl where Sting had teamed with Brian Pillman and Dustin Rhodes to defeat Rick Rude. Steve Austin and Paul Orndorff in a Thunder Cage match. Um, after the match, Rick Rude uh, attacked Sting and then slammed the door of the cage on Sting's face and then giving him the Rude Awakening on the floor. Um, Rude was the international world heavyweight champion at the time, which was the former NWA world heavyweight championship, and WCW and the NWA were kind of on the outs with each other uh, when it comes to recognizing the championship, um, and at this point, the NWA, I believe, was, was no longer affiliated with the company, but the big gold belt was a WCW possession, so it was renamed the international title, which uh, was... Kind of silly, uh, because as a kid before um, before this, I looked at that big gold belt as the big heavyweight title for WCW. That's what I recognized it as. Most people look at the ten pounds of gold with the NWA and the the the, the globe in the middle of the belt um, as the standard bearer of professional wrestling heavyweight championships. I looked at the big gold belt as that because of, you know, the guys like Flair and Dusty and Steamboat that wore it. So it was kind of it was kind of strange to see that belt renamed another name and then the WCW heavyweight title was a smaller version. It almost looked like it was their version of the WWF's Winged Eagle title, at least in my opinion. And Flair was holding that at that time in 94. So it was kind of strange for me that, that this title was renamed and seeing it, you know, around Rude's waist under a different name. Um, this rivalry would continue as Rude would, you know, go on to state that, uh, you know, Sting was not deserving to be in the in the uh, in a in a number one contender's role for this championship, um, but Sting would end up getting the opportunity to face him for the title at this event. Now, before this event took place um, in March on the sixteenth of nineteen ninety four, um, Rude lost that title um, in Japan during a New Japan Pro Wrestling show against Hiroshi Hase, um, but. Just seven, eight days, just eight days later, on that same tour of Japan, he would end up defeating Hase for the title on March 24th. And then it was announced on the March 26th episode of WCW Pro that he would go back to defending the title against Sting. So we come back to it. We're here. Another great match between these two. These two had great chemistry with each other. I remember some of their matches in, in you know, a couple of years prior. When Sting was the, you know, the 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 number one good guy opposing the Dangerous Alliance, and Rick Rude was kind of like the figurehead of that group, and they would have some great matches with each other for the United States title. Um, so no different here. This match was a lot of fun. The crowd was really into it. Excuse me. Harley Race got involved, unfortunately costing Rick Rude the championship, and Sting becoming the international world heavyweight champion. Um, and that's what history showed us. Uh, however, let's say, let's say Rick Rude somehow ends up the victor. And Rick Rude somehow retains the International Heavyweight Championship. Now, 
if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong here, um, but I believe it was either before or not too long after this that Rick Rude suffered that career-ending injury in, the, in that match with Sting. Um, I want to say it was before this, during a match that they had um, on that same J Japanese tour for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, and things didn't get any better from, from Rude for, for, for the rest of his career in terms of his health. Let's just say that that injury didn't take place, okay? And that Rude retained the title successfully over Sting. And I think that, too, is also a reason why Sting won the title, if I'm not mistaken. I believe, you know, it was determined that Rude was injured. He might not be able to wrestle again. He might have had one or two more matches in him. And that's when they decided to drop the title um, to Sting uh, because of an injury that took place inv involving him and Sting in a match on that same New Japan tour just a month prior. Uh, so we go to we go to Chicago, we go to Spring Stampede, um, and let's say Rick Rude wins and keeps the international title. Where does that where does that path take him? Okay, now let's factor in Hulk Hogan here for just a minute. Okay, uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more, but Hogan's name was mentioned during the Ric Flair Steamboat rivalry. Um, this was like the early signs of like a Ric Flair heel turn because he was a babyface at this time. Uh, but what if they decided to go Rick Rude Hulk Hogan? And Rick Rude defends the international championship against Hulk Hogan. Okay? I know that WCW wanted to put out the Hogan Flair dream match on a big stage like a pay-per-view because WWF did not do that two years prior at WrestleMania 8 for reasons that I actually got into on our uh, on our Mania Game Changers episode back in February, which you can find in the archives over at uh, SoundCloud.com or you can also find it over at... Um, over at uh, uh, Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network and are kicking out at two Facebook and Twitter pages. The links are all up there. Um, but yeah, imagine, if you will, um, Rick Rude keeping the, the international championship and Hulk Hogan is the first guy gunning for that title. Hulk Hogan makes it known that he's going to dethrone ravishing Rick Rude. Um, as a kid, I always I always wondered the possibilities of seeing a Hogan Rick Rude rivalry when they were in WWF. Um, you know, apparently it didn't happen because Hogan didn't feel safe in the ring with Rude. They he felt he was a little too stiff. Um, Rude had a reputation for being a little stiff in the ring. I wouldn't say dangerous and unsafe, but stories I've heard um, through other shoot interviews and podcasts that Rude was, uh, he, he was very physical in his matches and some guys were, um, were, were were not very comfortable being in the ring with him at times. So Hogan had heard that he was a, um, that, that, you know, heard of this reputation and he didn't want to work with him in the WWF. They had one match, I believe, in January of... 88, I want to say, in the Boston Garden, which you can find on the WWE Network. Um, the, it was a solid match. I remember watching it on the network. You know, 
in, in recent years. And uh, but I was just always I was always fascinated at the what if of Hogan and Rude in the WWF. But what if Hogan and Rude collided in WCW? Had Rude defeated Sting at this event and became the international champion? The 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 easy way out of this situation sees Hogan defeating Rude and defending and, and winning the international title, which now let's just hold on to that thought here. OK, let's just hold on to that thought for a minute, because this is going to this is going to this scenario here. I'm going to I'm going to bring it back full circle later on down the line on this show when I discuss Flair and Steamboat. Um, so just hold on to that, okay? Trading places scenario here, Rick Rude defeating Sting, keeping the international title, had he not been injured, and then going on to face Hulk Hogan, who would then arrive in WCW just a few short months later. So let's just hold on to that thought just for a minute there, okay? Let's move on. Bunkhouse Buck and Dustin Rhodes in a bunkhouse rules match at Spring Stampede of all places. Um, let's talk about really where this uh, where this situation uh, transpired and unfolded. It was on a March 19th episode of WCW Worldwide where Colonel Robert Parker introduced his newest client, Bunkhouse Buck, to WCW. Now, um, Buck and... Uh, you know, I'm sorry, Parker and Dustin Rhodes had some issues on WCW TV. I know um, with, uh, you know, uh, Steve Austin at one point um, and Dustin Rhodes had their had a little rivalry that resulted in uh, some uh, two out of three falls match at Starcade 93 just a, a few months prior. So Dustin and Colonel Robert Parker weren't finished with each other yet, but Parker introduced a new obstacle um, in Dustin's way, and that being Bunkhouse Buck. Um, it would be just a few short weeks before Spring Stampede that Buck and Dustin were officially announced to face each other for their match um, in the Bunkhouse match at Spring Stampede on an episode of WCW Pro. Now we get to this match, come as you are, very physical. We saw some blood in this match. It was a good match. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, you didn't see a whole lot of blood WCW at that time, but in this match it was called for, and uh, they delivered. And like I said, a very physical match. Crowd was into it. But Bunkhouse Buck would end up uh, picking up the victory in his debut pay-per-view match in WCW. Um, now, had the roles been reversed, um, and Dustin Rhodes picked up the victory... Um, I think that could have been I, I don't think anything would have changed in his rivalry uh, with Colonel Robert Parker and his stud stable. But I think it would have been uh, the more realistic catalyst to get you to that point, because as we all saw, Dustin was basically fighting an uphill battle with, you know, Parker and his stud stable. Parker had um, Ming, who was Haku, as like his bodyguard. Um, he, he would then later introduce Terry Funk, and so the odds were stacked against him. And then at one point, Dustin Rhodes would enlist in the services of Arn Anderson to team up with him, and Arn would turn on him at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, which would then result in Dustin going to his or Dustin's father Dusty coming out of retirement to offer his services to fight this battle against Colonel Robert Parker and his stud stable. So um, 
I feel like if Dustin were to get the victory in this scenario, it would only sped things up a little bit faster to get us to all those scenarios that I had just mentioned. So um, I can't see any any real great change in Dustin Rhodes' trajectory in 1994 following this match. Maybe this victory would then lead to him... Um, you know, maybe maybe it would be a series of events that started at this spring stampede. Like, let's say he beats, you know, Bunkhouse Buck in this Bunkhouse match, okay? And it really sets off, you know, Colonel Robert Parker. And Dustin lobbies for a rematch for the United States title against a stunning Steve Austin, who, if he were to still have kept the title, like I mentioned earlier, Muda winning the title, I feel like would have been uh, a spot for someone in a transitional role to get them to a bigger picture, like and Arn Anderson. But let's just say for argument's sake, Austin kept that title and Dustin Rhodes wins this match. Dustin Rhodes could lobby for another United States Championship match against Steve Austin and maybe come out the victor. And that really sets the ball in motion for Colonel Robert Parker to gather up all the troops and, you know, try to, to end Dustin Rhodes' career or his run as United States Champion. Um, adding those little twists to the already um, established scenarios that had taken place in real time, I think would have been a, a realistic approach for Dustin Rhodes. It wouldn't have changed a whole lot, but it would have, I think, made for some interesting twists in the, in, in the storyline between him and the stud stable, uh, as we saw in 1994. So with that being said... Um, yeah, Dustin Rhodes defeating Bunkhouse Buck. I could see him lobbying for that U.S. title match, defeating Steve Austin, and then really getting under the skin of Colonel Robert Parker, resulting in Parker doing everything that he did in 1994, bringing Terry Funk, eventually enlisting in Arn Anderson to turn on Dustin, and so on and so forth. So that would have been a, that would have been a cool little setup. I, yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. Um Let's continue here with the semi-main event. It would be Vader defeating the boss, who was known as the big boss man, Ray Trailer. Um, yeah, I'll get into I'll get into this in a minute because this is just the name the boss is stupid in my opinion. But um, and I talked about this on this show. I've talked about this on Marking Off the Days, and I will get into it extensively in just a minute um it was at super brawl four that the boss was the special referee during that thunder cage six-man tag that i spoke of uh you know not too long ago with sting and rick rude um or i'm sorry no he was involved in the the it was a double thunder cage main event so it was the six-man tag but then you also had flair and vader in the thunder cage for the title and the boss was the special guest referee um vader had gotten physical with him during that match and handcuffed him to the cage resulting in eventually the boss fighting back and helping rick flair defeat vader which would then lead us to spring stampede between these two um and yeah, I mean that was really that was really all that like the major you know straw that broke the camel's back so to speak to get us to this point. So you had these two wrestle, and earlier in the evening Harley Race had attacked or he tried to cost Sting the international title because he was trying to lobby to get Vader an opportunity at the international championship. And it backfired on him, causing Rick Rude to lose the title and Sting become the international heavyweight champion. Um, 
So Harley Race kind of had his hands full here. However, um, Vader defeating the boss um, in this in this situation here uh, was probably the most you know was the was the most realistic finish because Vader had suffered two pay per view losses in a row to Ric Flair and he kind of needed to get his heat back a little bit. However, let's just say that the boss did come out the victor. Okay. Now, actually, you know what? Let me backtrack a little bit, okay? Because it was the post-match antics of the boss uh, that caused one of the dumbest character changes in the history of wrestling, in my opinion. Uh, the boss used his nightstick to assault Vader post-match after losing to Vader. And then WCW commissioner, head of the championship committee, Nick Bockwinkle, um, addressed him backstage in an interview post-match with Mean Gene Okerlund and told him that due to his actions, he is no longer allowed to use the nightstick and he is no longer allowed to call himself the boss. Now, I didn't care for the name to begin with um, because I always knew him as the big boss man. Um, at that time, I also knew that he had an association with Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. And during Jim Crockett promotions, he was Big Bubba Rogers. So I was just kind of surprised that they didn't bring him in as Big Bubba, but kind of under the same Big Boss Man gimmick. They just used the boss as short. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was extremely dumb. And I thought it was dumber that Nick Bockwinkle told him, you're not allowed to use your name and you're not allowed to use the nightstick. I mean, this is fucking pro wrestling here. I mean, come on, you know, what, how realistic is it for an authority figure or a boss to tell you, you can't go by that name anymore. That to me was just fucking dumb and outrageous. And what was even more outrageous was the fact that he would end up becoming the guardian angel, um, which I thought was even dumber. It really was. So now let's go to this scenario here, you know, Vader defeating the boss resulted in this this character change. But what if the boss defeated Vader? Okay, would we have seen Nick Bockwinkle dethrone the boss of his identity, forcing him to change his name and his look? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we had to have that post-match, you know, uh, nightstick beat down by the boss to Vader to get to that point. But if the boss defeated Vader and won, um, I really don't see a whole lot coming out of it for him. I don't. Um, maybe, maybe an association as like a friend with you know Hulk Hogan would would would, would come of this. Um, maybe a shot at one of the titles, like the U.S. title or the TV title, but. Um, I guess this had to happen at some point. I guess this was, uh, you know, something that, that, that needed to be done. And, and, you know, I don't really see a boss victory taking him anywhere, um, in WCW 1994, I guess the loss and the, the, the stripping of his identity was the right move for him to eventually be the guardian angel, which was stupid <laughs> to begin with. And then he would have actually eventually go back to being Big Bubba Rogers um, heading into 1995. Go figure. So, uh, yeah, that's where that's where I stand when it comes to that scenario. Um, 
Vader would would ride the uh, the wave of momentum with his pay per view victories continuing on after this to eventually claim um, a title shot at the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, which would eventually be Hulk Hogan at the end of this year in 1994. So. Um, it sounded like they were grooming Vader to be back in the title picture following this victory. They were name-dropping him a lot. Uh, when it came to the title, at one point, I believe Harley Race had suggested he deserved an opportunity following this match. Um, so, But they continued the stuff with him and the Guardian Angel, and yeah, that was that. So um, that's where I stand when it comes to this. Now let's get to the main event, okay? Ric Flair... Ricky the Dragon Steamboat for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, okay? Um, let's go back to where this really started. Um, it was, uh, you know, Flair had returned in 1993. He was a good guy. He eventually won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship from Vader um, at Super, Bro or I'm sorry, Starcade um, in 1993. And the post-match locker room celebration Steamboat came in and congratulated them. They shook hands. They kind of alluded to their history. And so you kind of saw the, the, the early seeds of, you know, these two are eventually going to lock up down the line, um, but under different, under different circumstances. Um, this would have been more uh, in the spirit of competition than the personal rivalry that they, the two of them had in their series of uh, trilogy, you know, their trilogy in uh, 1989 from Chi-Town Heat to uh, um, uh, the the Clash of Champions and then the Wrestle War, the Music City Showdown. Um, this was this was on, this would have been under different circumstances, just based off of that interaction they had in that post match locker room interview following Flair's title win at Starcade. He would eventually go on to Super Brawl to retain the championship in the Thunder Cage against Vader. The same match where Vader and the the Boss, the Guardian Angel, Big Bubba, whatever you want to call him, they had their issues resulting in what we just spoke of in the last match. Um, it was at that same event that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was named the number one contender and would face the WCW World Heavyweight Champion at Spring Stampede. Now, I kind of talked about this earlier. Steve Austin kind of had uh, claimed his his uh, his stake at the WCW title um, and his involvement with Steamboat. It was on an episode of March 5th of uh, WCW Saturday Night where Colonel Robert Parker confronted Steamboat and claimed he deserved the t that Austin deserved the title shot instead, which then led to a tag team match with Austin and Lord Steven Regal against Steamboat and Arn Anderson. Okay. I was mistaken. I mentioned earlier that Arn Anderson wasn't sure uh, when he had come back, but it was before, um, and he was not on this card, which was surprisingly enough. So Arn Anderson and Steamboat um, lost this tag match with Austin pinning Steamboat. The following week, on Saturday night, Steamboat defeated Austin by disqualification to become the number one contender for the title at Spring Stampede. Um, and this is where things really get hot and heavy with Flair and Steamboat, because following the match, um, Austin and Colonel Robert Parker had attacked, his, uh, attacked Steamboat, resulting in Flair coming in to rescue uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, but then uh, by accident, Steamboat assaulted Flair um, over some miscommunication. He probably didn't see him. Flair went to go kind of grab him, help him up. Flair, you know... Gets a, gets a right hand and a chop by Steamboat. Bing, bang, boom. There's the tension between the two. Okay? Um, 
They would confront each other in the following weeks, and in a particular episode of WCW Saturday Night, this is where Hulk Hogan's name was dropped, where Flair would then claim he could beat Hulk Hogan and offered Hogan an invitation to Spring Stampede to watch him defeat Steamboat. Um, and then they would just kind of go back and forth based on their history. Uh, Flair would, dis- Flair would, you know, cut promos discussing the times he had defeated Steamboat. Um, you know, uh, it, it, the one in particular, the, uh, the the Wrestle War Music City Showdown in uh, May of 1989, which will be appro- we will be approaching the 30th anniversary of that event, uh, with uh, Flair defeating Steamboat for the 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 World Heavyweight Title. That was the infamous night where Terry Funk attacked Ric Flair post-match and gave him the pile driver through the table. So in the promo leading up to the Spring Stampede match, Flair kind of threw that little dig in there that I defeated Steamboat became the champion. Steamboat retaliated and said, oh yeah, well, you know, if you remember, I defeated you at the Chi-Town Rumble in February of 1989 to become the World Heavyweight Champion. So uh, we... um, we get to this point now. Both guys have their issues with each other. Uh, a little personal rivalry, some tension between the two. Hulk Hogan's name gets dropped. You're kind of planting seeds for a Ric Flair heel turn. And this match, a great match, not as good as the trilogy in 89, as most people um, would say. And I would have to agree. But still a very good match, bell to bell. Um History showed us that there was a double pin between the two, and we saw a no contest, um, which I thought was, for a pay-per-view, was kind of baffling to end the show with, like, a no contest, um, that there was no real clear-cut winner. So it kind of left you wondering if Steamboat was going to get another opportunity at Flair, but at the same time, Flair was still the champion, and he kind of name-dropped Hogan, even though Hogan wasn't officially signed with WCW at the time, it was alluded to that he was going to be appearing or that, you know, he could appear, but his status, like I said, was up in the air. Now, let's just say for argument's sake, now there's a few different scenarios that we can go here with this and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, I'm going to kind of be all over the place here, so I apologize ahead of time. Let's just say for argument's sake, that Flair wins this match. Okay, Flair gets the victory, and we have ourselves, you know, Flair, you know, retaining the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Um, well, easily it gets us to Hogan and Flair. Okay, however, Flair and Steamboat is something that people were into, and. We could have easily seen a rematch between these two. Now, let's go back just a little bit to the scenario I mentioned earlier with the International Championship. Rick Rude defeating Sting, retaining that title, and Hulk Hogan challenging Rude instead of Flair. Okay? Let's just say, for instance, that Flair, even though he name-dropped Hogan and kind of loosely challenged him on TV. Let's just say Flair defeated Steamboat. They don't go with the the, the, the rematch between the two. And we kind of see Hogan make his way into WCW. And both Flair and Rude are lobbying to be the ones to kind of knock Hogan off his perch. That could be an interesting scenario where both champions want to prove that 
they're the one that could beat the great immortal Hulk Hogan in his first match in WCW. Uh, Flair and Rude had a little bit of a rivalry in the fall of 93, where Rude would end up winning the international title from Flair at Fall Brawl 1993, and then he would eventually retain that title at the next month's Halloween Havoc. Uh, So you could kind of... um, feed off of that personal rivalry the two of them had and kind of bring that back to life with both of them lobbying to face Hulk Hogan. Um, I could easily see something like that going down. I could also see Flair backtracking and Hogan challenging Flair, but Flair saying, no, 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 no. You got to earn it. You're not in my league yet. If you want to be the world champion, You got to prove yourself here in WCW. I'm not going to defend the title against you. Which then, that's where you insert Rick Rude. And Hulk Hogan's mission is, well, Flair doesn't think I'm I'm capable of being the champion. I'll show him. I'll prove to him I deserve an opportunity to that title. And that's where you set up Hogan and Rick Rude. And Hogan defeats Rick Rude, let's just say, at Bash at the Beach. Let's say they go with Hogan and rude for the international title and let's say at bash at the beach it could be flair and steamboat in a rematch from spring stampede or it could be flair and sting in a match for the wcw world heavyweight title and let's say hogan defeats rude and flair defeats sting and at the end of that pay-per-view you got both champions kind of staring each other down both with the title and you could set up halloween havoc with a title unification between the two or maybe even drag it out to starcade you know, maybe maybe Hogan gives Rude a rematch at Halloween Havoc and Flair still works with Sting or with someone else. And then you set up Starcade, which was their big premiere event, which was their WrestleMania. And you, that's where you have the title unification between Hogan and Flair. I get why they they went the route that they did in 94 with Hogan going to challenge flair for the title they wanted to 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 one-up wwf and put that big dream match on a large stage like pay-per-view because wwf didn't do that two years prior with wrestlemania i completely get it from a business standpoint you put the you put the biggest name in the company against arguably the, the the biggest star in all of wrestling at that time hulk hogan coming into wcw i understand that completely um but the what ifs the what ifs make you wonder i mean just come on like imagine you know and here here's here's another one if scenario let's say steamboat won and defeated flair we didn't get this double pin and flair didn't win the title or keep the title okay you could still kind of go that same direction hogan going up against rick rude or maybe rick rude challenging hogan and rick rude saying you know what like, I'm the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. Who does Hulk Hogan think he is trying to come in here and steal my thunder? I'll, I'll defend my title against Hogan. I'll beat Hogan, and I'll send him packing, and his, his, he'll have the shortest career in all of WCW. And then you, on the other side of that coin, you have Steamboat defending that title in a rematch against Flair at Bash at the Beach. Flair could still win that, become the champion. Hogan could still beat Rick Rude. You could still have that face-off moment with the two champions, resulting in a title unification down the line at a major event, like I said, like a Halloween Havoc or even like a Starcade. So there's a few different scenarios 
that you could go with at the top of the card um, when it comes to Flare and Steamboat. Um, there's, a, there's other names that factor into this. Like I said, Vader. Vader's name was dropped and mentioned you know, is is wanting an opportunity at one of the world heavyweight titles. He had, had two chances. He had he actually should say had a chance against Ric Flair at Super Brawl two months prior. Came up short. He wanted an opportunity at the international title. Harley Race caused more issues for 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 Rick Rude and costing him the oppor- you know the opportunity to keep that title, resulting in Sting being the champion. But Vader could be easily inserted somewhere into that scenario as well. You know, maybe. Maybe Vader, after defeating the boss, says, I deserve an opportunity at the WCW title. And he's the one that challenges Steamboat, you know? And, and Flair's out of the picture. And you do Hogan and Flair at Bash at the Beach, but without the title, you know? I know that the big money is for the championship, but at the same time, that was the dream match that never happened on a big stage. And you could have still promoted that as the big match. Was the belt necessary? Yes and no, but at the same time, Hogan and Flair sold itself. You know what I mean? It, it really did. It sold itself. So um, a lot of different interesting scenarios coming out of that event, um, especially for that match that I feel like could have really set the table for an interesting turn of events in 1994. I mean, it was status quo when it came to Hulk Hogan and his entry into WCW. He beat the top guy had the belt and then kind of had a run and went through everybody, um, you know, similar to his, his time in the world wrestling federation when he first won the title from the iron Sheik in, uh, in, in 84 or 85, I believe it was yeah, 84, January 23rd, 1984. Anyhow. So there you have it. Um, I laid it all out. WCW spring stampede, 1994. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys, uh, you know, uh, we're able to uh, get through just me by myself rambling on. Hopefully next week I'll have a, a co-host uh, of some sorts as we discuss and watch WCW Spring Stampede 1997. That's right. It's a special watch party. It was voted on by you guys in the poll on both Facebook and Twitter. So we're going to sit down and we're going to watch that on the WWE Network. Main event saw Diamond Dallas Page take on the Macho Man Randy Savage. We saw Kevin Nash go one-on-one with Rick Steiner. A fatal four-way match to the determine a number one contender between Booker T, Stevie Ray, Lex Luger and the Giant, and so many other great matches that littered WCW Spring Stampede 1997. And don't forget, also, we are on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us over at Podbean, and you can search Kicking Out at 2 under the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network banner and find all the archive footage. And speaking of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network, you can also find me on another great show called Marking Out the Days. Kobe Nive and I are going to discuss all the good, bad, and the ugly that is april the 18th in professional wrestling history you can find that each and every thursday over at the retromania pro wrestling podcast network over on podbean and i think that about does it this week so without further ado i think it's time that we're going to put this show down for the three count officially all the what if scenarios the trading places they've all been put on the table you guys figure it out and we'll see you all next week